Chapter 10 of A Short Life of Abraham Lincoln This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ernst Schnell A Short Life of Abraham Lincoln by John G. Nicolay Chapter 10 Lincoln's Kansas Speeches The Cooper Institute Speech New England speeches, the Democratic schism, Senator Brown's resolutions, Jefferson Davis's resolutions, the Charleston Convention, majority and minority reports, cotton state delegations secede, Charleston Convention adjourns, Democratic Baltimore Convention splits, Breckenridge nominated, Douglas nominated, Bell nominated by Union Constitutional Convention, Chicago Convention, Lincoln's letters to Pickett and Judd, the pivotal states, Lincoln nominated. During the month of December 1859, Mr. Lincoln was invited to the territory of Kansas, where he made speeches at a number of its new and growing towns. In these speeches, he laid special emphasis upon the necessity of maintaining undiminished the vigor of the Republican organization and the high plane of the Republican doctrine. We want and must have, said he, a national policy as to slavery which deals with it as being a wrong. Whoever would prevent slavery becoming national and perpetual yields all when he yields to a policy which treats it either as being right or as being a matter of indifference. To effect our main object, we have to employ auxiliary means. We must hold conventions, adopt platforms, select candidates and carry elections. At every step we must be true to the main purpose. If we adopt a platform falling short of our principle, or elect a man rejecting our principle, we not only take nothing affirmative by our success, but we draw upon us the positive embarrassment of seeming ourselves to have abandoned our principle. A still more important service, however, in giving the Republican presidential campaign of 1860 precise form and issue was rendered by him during the first three months of the new year. The public mind had become so preoccupied with the dominant subject of national politics that a committee of enthusiastic young Republicans of New York and Brooklyn arranged a course of public lectures by prominent statesmen and Mr. Lincoln was invited to deliver the third one of the series. The meeting took place in the hall of the Cooper Institute in New York on the evening of February 27, 1860, and the audience was made up of ladies and gentlemen comprising the leading representatives of the wealth, culture and influence of the great metropolis. Mr. Lincoln's name and arguments had filled so large a space in Eastern newspapers, both friendly and hostile, that the listeners before him were intensely curious to see and hear this rising Western politician. The West was even at that late day but imperfectly understood by the East. The poets and editors, the bankers and merchants of New York vaguely remembered having read in their books that it was the home of Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett, the country of bowie knives and pistols, of steamboat explosions and mobs, of wild speculation and the repudiation of state debts. And these half-forgotten impressions had lately been vividly recalled by a several-year succession of newspaper reports retailing the incidents of border ruffian violence and free-state guerrilla reprisals during the Civil War in Kansas. 
what was to be the type, the character, the language of this speaker? How could he impress the great editor Horace Greeley, who sat among the invited guests? David Dudley Field, the great lawyer who escorted him to the platform? William Cullen Bryant, the great poet who presided over the meeting? Judging from after-effects, the audience quickly forgot these questioning thoughts. They had but time to note Mr. Lincoln's impressive stature, his strongly marked features, the clear ring of his rather high-pitched voice, and the almost commanding earnestness of his manner. His beginning foreshadowed a dry argument, using as a text Douglas's phrase that our fathers, when they framed the government under which we live, understood this question just as well and even better than we do now. But the concise statements, the strong links of reasoning and the irresistible conclusions of the argument, with which the speaker followed his close historical analysis of how our fathers understood this question, held every listener as though each were individually merged with the speaker's thought and demonstration. It is surely safe to assume, said he with emphasis, that the thirty-nine framers of the original Constitution and the seventy-six members of the Congress which framed the amendments thereto, taken together, do certainly include those who may be fairly called our fathers who framed the government under which we live. And so assuming, I defy any man to show that any one of them ever in his whole life declared that, in his understanding, any proper division of local from federal authority, or any part of the Constitution forbade the federal government to control as to slavery in the federal territories. With equal skill he next dissected the complaints, the demands, and the threats to dissolve the Union made by the southern states, pointed out their emptiness, their fallacy, and their injustice, and defined the exact point and center of the agitation. Holding as they do, said he, that slavery is morally right and socially elevating, they cannot cease to demand a full national recognition of it as a legal right and a social blessing. Nor can we justifiably withhold this on any ground, save our conviction that slavery is wrong. If slavery is right, all words, acts, laws, and constitutions against it are themselves wrong, and should be silenced and swept away. If it is right, we cannot justly object to its nationality, its universality. If it is wrong, they cannot justly insist upon its extension, its enlargement. All they ask we could readily grant if we thought slavery right. All we ask they could readily grant if they thought it wrong. Their thinking it right and our thinking it wrong is the precise fact upon which depends the whole controversy. Wrong as we think slavery is, we can yet afford to let it alone where it is, because that much is due to the necessity arising from its actual presence in the nation. But can we, while our votes will prevent it, allow it to spread into the national territories and to overrun us here in the free states? If our sense of duty forbids this, then let us stand by our duty fearlessly and effectively. Let us be diverted by none of those sophistical contrivances wherewith we are so industriously plied and belabored, contrivances such as groping for some middle ground between the right and the wrong vain as the search for a man who should be neither a living man nor a dead man. Such as a policy of don't care on a question about which all true men do care. 
such as union appeals beseeching true union men to yield to disunionist reversing the divine rule and calling not the sinners but the righteous to repentance such as invocations to washington imploring men to unsay what washington said and then do what washington did neither let us be slandered from our duty by false accusation against us nor frightened from it by menaces of destruction to the government nor of dungeons to ourselves let us have faith that right makes might and in that faith let us to the end dare to do our duty as we understand it the close attention bestowed on its delivery the hearty applause that greeted its telling points and the enthusiastic comments of the republican journals next morning showed that lincoln's cooper institute speech had taken new york by storm it was printed in full in four of the leading new york dailies and at once went into large circulation in carefully edited pamphlet editions from new york lincoln made a tour of speech-making through several of the new england states and was everywhere received with enthusiastic welcome and listened to with an eagerness that bore a marked result in their spring elections. The interest of the factorymen who listened to these addresses was equaled, perhaps excelled, by the gratified surprise of college professors when they heard the style and method of a popular Western orator that would bear the test of their professional criticism and compare with the best examples in their standard textbooks. The attitude of the Democratic Party in the coming presidential campaign was now also rapidly taking shape. Great curiosity existed whether the radical differences between its northern and southern wings could by any possibility be removed or adjusted, whether the adherents of Douglas and those of Buchanan could be brought to join in a common platform and in the support of a single candidate. The Democratic leaders in the southern states had become more and more outspoken in their pro-slavery demands. They had advanced step by step from the repeal of the Missouri Compromise in 1854, the attempt to capture Kansas by Missouri invasions in 1855 and 1856, the support of the Dred Scott decision and the Lecompton fraud in 1857, the repudiation of Douglas's Freeport heresy in 1858, to the demand for a congressional slave code for the territories and the recognition of the doctrine of property in slaves. These last two points they had distinctly formulated in the first session of the 36th Congress. On January 18, 1860, Senator Brown of Mississippi introduced into the Senate two resolutions, one asserting the nationality of slavery the other that, when necessary, Congress should pass laws for its protection in the territories. On February 2nd, Jefferson Davis introduced another series of resolutions intended to serve as a basis for the National Democratic Platform, the central points of which were that the right to take and hold slaves in the territories could neither be impaired nor annulled, and that it was the duty of Congress to supply any deficiency of laws for its protection. Perhaps even more significant than these formulated doctrines was the pro-slavery spirit manifested in the congressional debates. Two months were wasted in a parliamentary struggle to prevent the election of the Republican John Sherman as Speaker of the House of Representatives, because the Southern members charged that he had recommended an abolition book, during which time the most sensational and violent threats of disunion were made in both the House and the Senate, containing repeated declarations that they would never submit to the inauguration of a black Republican president.
when the National Democratic Convention met at Charleston on April 23, 1860, there at once became evident the singular condition that the delegates from the free states were united and enthusiastic in their determination to secure the nomination of Douglas as the Democratic candidate for president, while the delegates from the slave states were equally united and determined upon forcing the acceptance of an extreme pro-slavery platform. All expectations of a compromise, all hope of coming to an understanding by juggling omissions or evasions in the declaration of party principles, were quickly dissipated. The platform committee, after three days and nights of fruitless effort, presented two antagonistic reports. The majority report declared that neither Congress nor a territorial legislature could abolish or prohibit slavery in the territories and that it was the duty of the federal government to protect it when necessary. To this doctrine the northern members could not consent, but they were willing to adopt the ambiguous declaration that property rights in slaves were judicial in their character, and that they would abide the decisions of the Supreme Court on such questions. The usual expedient of recommitting both reports brought no relief from the deadlock. A second majority and a second minority report exhibited the same irreconcilable divergence in slightly different language, and the words of mutual defiance exchanged in debating the first report rose to a parliamentary storm when the second came under discussion. On the seventh day the convention came to a vote, and the northern delegates being in the majority, the minority report was substituted for that of the majority of the committee by 165 to 138 delegates. In other words, the Douglas platform was declared adopted. Upon this, the delegates of the cotton states, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, South Carolina, Florida, Texas, and Arkansas, withdrew from the convention. It soon appeared, however, that the Douglas delegates had achieved only a barren victory. Their majority could indeed adopt a platform, but under the acknowledged two-thirds rule which governs democratic national conventions, they had not sufficient votes to nominate their candidate. During the 57 ballots taken, the Douglas men could muster only 152 and one-half votes of the 202 necessary to a choice and to prevent mere slow disintegration, the convention adjourned on the tenth day under a resolution to reassemble in Baltimore on June 18th. Nothing was gained, however, by the delay. In the interim, Jefferson Davis and nineteen other southern leaders published an address commending the withdrawal of the cotton state delegates, and in a Senate debate, Davis laid down the plain proposition, We want nothing more than a simple declaration that Negro slaves are property, and we want the recognition of the obligation of the federal government to protect that property like all other. Upon the reassembling of the Charleston Convention at Baltimore, it underwent a second disruption on the fifth day. The northern wing nominated Stephen A. Douglas of Illinois and the southern wing John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky as their respective candidates for president. In the meanwhile, also regular and irregular delegates from some twenty-two states representing fragments of the old Whig party had convened in Baltimore on May 9th and nominated John Bell of Tennessee as their candidate for president, upon a platform ignoring the slave issue and declaring they would recognize no other political principle than the constitution of the country, the union of the states, and the enforcement of the laws. In the long contest between slavery extension and slavery restriction, which was now approaching its culmination, 
the growing demands and increasing bitterness of the pro-slavery party had served in an equal degree to intensify the feelings and stimulate the efforts of the republican party and remembering the encouraging opposition strength which the united vote of fremont and fillmore had shown in eighteen fifty six they felt encouraged to hope for possible success in eighteen sixty since the fillmore party had practically disappeared throughout the free states when therefore the charleston convention was rent asunder and adjourned on may tenth without making a nomination the possibility of republican victory seemed to have risen to probability such a feeling inspired the eager enthusiasm of the delegates to the republican national convention which met according to appointment at chicago on may sixteenth a large temporary wooden building christened the wigwam had been erected in which to hold its sessions and it was estimated that ten thousand persons were assembled in it to witness the proceedings william h seward of new york was recognized as the leading candidate but chase of ohio cameron of pennsylvania bates of missouri and several prominent republicans from other states were known to have active and zealous followers the name of abraham lincoln had also often been mentioned during his growing fame and fully a year before an ardent republican editor of illinois had requested permission to announce him in his newspaper lincoln however discouraged such action at that time answering him as to the other matter you kindly mention i must in candor say i do not think myself fit for the presidency i certainly am flattered and gratified that some partial friends think of me in that connection but i really think it best for our cause that no concerted effort such as you suggest should be made he had given an equally positive answer to an eager ohio friend in the preceding july but about christmas eighteen fifty nine an influential caucus of his strongest illinois adherents made a personal request that he would permit them to use his name and he gave his consent not so much in any hope of becoming the nominee for president as in possibly reaching the second place on the ticket or at least of making such a showing of strength before the convention as would aid him in his future senatorial ambition at home or perhaps carry him into the cabinet of the republican president should one succeed he had not been eager to enter the lists but once having agreed to do so it was but natural that he should manifest a becoming interest subject however now as always to his inflexible rule of fair dealing and honorable faith to all his party friends i do not understand trumbull and myself to be rivals he wrote december ninth eighteen fifty nine you know i am pledged not to enter a struggle with him for the seat in the senate now occupied by him and yet i would rather have a full term in the senate than in the presidency and on february ninth he wrote to the same illinois friend i am not in a position where it would hurt much for me not to be nominated on the national ticket but i am where it would hurt some for me not to get the illinois delegates what i expected when i wrote the letters to messrs dole and others is now happening your discomfited assailants are most bitter against me and they will for revenge upon me lay to the bates egg in the south and to the seward egg in the north and go far toward squeezing me out of the middle with nothing can you not help me a little in this matter in your end of the vineyard it turned out that the delegates whom the illinois state convention sent to the national convention at chicago were men not only of exceptional standing and ability but filled with the warmest zeal for mr lincoln's success and they were able at once to impress upon delegates from other states his sterling personal worth and fitness and his superior availability 
it needed but little political arithmetic to work out the sum of existing political chances. It was almost self-evident that in the coming November election victory or defeat would hang upon the result in the four pivotal states of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Indiana, and Illinois. It was quite certain that no Republican candidate could carry a single one of the fifteen slave states, and equally sure that Breckenridge, on his extreme pro-slavery platform, could not carry a single one of the eighteen free states. But there was a chance that one or more of these four pivotal free states might cast its vote for Douglas and popular sovereignty. A candidate was needed, therefore, who could successfully cope with Douglas and the Douglas theory, and this ability had been convincingly demonstrated by Lincoln. As a mere personal choice, a majority of the convention would have preferred Seward, but in the four pivotal states there were many voters who believed Seward's anti-slavery views to be too radical. They shrank apprehensively from the phrase in one of his speeches that there is a higher law than the Constitution. These pivotal states all lay adjoining slave states, and their public opinion was infected with something of the undefined dread of abolitionism. When the delegates of the pivotal states were interviewed, they frankly confessed that they could not carry their states for Seward, and that would mean certain defeat if he were the nominee for president. For their voters Lincoln stood on more acceptable ground. His speeches had been more conservative, his local influence in his own state of Illinois was also a factor not to be idly thrown away. Plain practical reasoning of this character found ready acceptance among the delegates to the convention. Their eagerness for the success of the cause largely overbalanced their personal preferences for favorite aspirants. When the convention met, the fresh, hearty hopefulness of its members was a most inspiring reflection of the public opinion in the states that sent them. They went at their work with an earnestness which was an encouraging premonition of success, and they felt a gratifying support in the presence of the ten thousand spectators who looked on at their work. Few conventions have ever been pervaded by such a depth of feeling or exhibited such a reserve of latent enthusiasm. The cheers that greeted the entrance of popular favorites and the short speeches on preliminary business ran and rolled through the great audience in successive moving waves of sound that were echoed and re-echoed from side to side in the vast building. Not alone the delegates on the central platform, but in the multitude of spectators as well, felt they were playing a part in a great historical event. The temporary and afterward the permanent organization was finished on the first day, with somewhat less than usual of the wordy and tantalizing small talk which these routine proceedings always call forth. On the second day the platform committee submitted its work, embodying the carefully considered and skillfully framed body of doctrines of which the Republican Party, made up only four years before from such previously heterogeneous and antagonistic political elements, was now able to find common and durable ground of agreement. Around its central tenet, which denied the authority of Congress, of territorial legislature, or of any individuals to give legal existence to slavery in any territory of the United States, were grouped vigorous denunciations of the various steps and incidents of the pro-slavery reaction and its prospective demands, while its positive recommendations embraced the immediate admission of Kansas, free homesteads to actual settlers, river and harbor improvements of national character, a railroad to the Pacific Ocean, and the maintenance of existing naturalization laws. 
The platform was about to be adopted without objection when a flurry of discussion arose over an amendment proposed by Mr. Giddings of Ohio to incorporate in it the phrase of the Declaration of Independence, which declares the right of all men to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Impatience was at once manifested lest any change should produce endless delay and dispute. I believe in the Ten Commandments, commented a member, but I do not want them in a political platform, and the proposition was voted down. Upon this the old anti-slavery veteran felt himself aggrieved, and taking up his hat, marched out of the convention. In the course of an hour's desultory discussion, however, a member, with stirring oratorical emphasis, asked whether the convention was prepared to go upon record before the country as voting down the words of the Declaration of Independence, whether the men of 1860 on the free prairies of the West quailed before repeating the words enunciated by the men in 76 at Philadelphia. In an impulse of patriotic reaction, the amendment was incorporated into the platform, and Mr. Giddings was brought back by his friends, his face beaming with triumph, and the stormy acclaim of the audience manifested the deep feeling which the incident evoked. On the third day it was certain that balloting would begin, and crowds hurried to the wigwam in a fever of curiosity. Having grown restless at the indispensable routine preliminaries, when Mr. Everts nominated William H. Seward of New York for president, they greeted his name with a perfect storm of applause. Then Mr. Judd nominated Abraham Lincoln of Illinois, and in the tremendous cheering that broke from the throats of his admirers and followers, the former demonstration dwindled to comparative feebleness. Again and again these contests of lungs and enthusiasm were repeated, as the choice of New York was seconded by Michigan, and that of Illinois by Indiana. When other names had been duly presented, the cheering at length subsided, and the chairman announced that balloting would begin. Many spectators had provided themselves with tally lists, and when the first roll-call was completed, were able at once to perceive the drift of popular preference. Cameron, Chase, Bates, McLean, Dayton, and Colomer were endorsed by the substantial votes of their own states, but two names stood out in marked superiority. Seward, who had received 173 and one-half votes, and Lincoln, 102. The New York delegation was so thoroughly persuaded of the final success of their candidate that they did not comprehend the significance of this first ballot. Had they reflected that their delegation alone had contributed 70 votes to Seward's total, they would have understood that outside of the Empire State Upon this first showing, Lincoln held their favorite almost an even race. As the second ballot progressed, their anxiety visibly increased. They watched with eagerness as the complimentary votes first cast for state favorites were transferred now to one, now to the other of the recognized leaders in the contest, and their hopes sank when the result of the second ballot was announced. Seward, 184 and one-half, Lincoln, 181, and a volume of applause, which was with difficulty checked by the chairman, shook the wigwam at this announcement. Then followed a short interval of active caucusing in the various delegations, while excited men went about rapidly interchanging questions, solicitations, and messages between delegations from different states. Neither candidate had yet received a majority of all the votes cast and the third ballot was begun amid a deep, almost painful suspense, 
delegates and spectators alike recording each announcement of votes on their tally sheets with nervous fingers. But the doubt was of short duration, before the secretaries made the official announcement the totals had been figured up. Lincoln, 231 and one-half, Seward, 180. Counting the scattering votes, 465 ballots had been cast, and 233 were necessary to a choice. Seward had lost four and one-half. Lincoln had gained fifty and one-half, and only one and one-half votes more were needed to make a nomination. The wigwam suddenly became as still as a church, and everybody leaned forward to see whose voice would break the spell. Before the lapse of a minute, David K. Carter sprang upon his chair and reported a change of four Ohio votes from Chase to Lincoln. Then a teller shouted a name toward the skylight, and the boom of cannon from the roof of the wigwam announced the nomination and started the cheering of the overjoyed Illinoisians down the long Chicago streets. While in the wigwam, delegation after delegation changed its vote to the victor amid a tumult of hurrahs. When quiet was somewhat restored, Mr. Everts, speaking for New York and for Seward, moved to make the nomination unanimous, and Mr. Browning gracefully returned the thanks of Illinois for the honor the convention had conferred upon the state. In the afternoon, the convention completed its work by nominating Hannibal Hamlin of Maine for vice president, and as the delegates sped homeward in the night trains, they witnessed in the bonfires and cheering crowds at the stations that a memorable presidential campaign was already begun. End of chapter 10